Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom, the Gremlins left after the first take. Uh, I heard the music on the second round. I'm impressed that you remembered how to kind of rectify that issue because it hasn't happened as commonplace I know, in recent it's, times. It's a thing. It's it, a little it, bit it, more it, advanced it, than what we needed to be. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's nice probably the nicest way to put it. I, I need more knobs and less buttons. No, you don't need as many knobs or buttons. <laughs> well, I mean, knobs is more my the speed. The problem is, is the knobs are all on the MacBook. The buttons are all on the actual mixing portion. Yeah, MacBook and, is a whole other issue. Yeah, that's a rabbit hole that nobody has time to go down. And so introduce, okay. our, introduce our guests. We're sorry while we, we digress. We have with us today in the studio two guests from campus. We have Madison Dixon and Alex Thomason, and I will let the two of you introduce yourselves beyond that, but we'll start with you, Madison. All right. Thank you, sir. So Madison Dixon, I'm the Associate Director of the new Agricultural Autonomy Institute at Mississippi State University, been with MSU since 2016, and excited for the new opportunity, excited to be with you all today. Fantastic. And yeah, hey, I'm Alex Thomason. I'm the director of the Agricultural Autonomy Institute, and I wear another hat, and that is the department head of the Agricultural and Biological Engineering Department. So he's Wes's department head. That would be correct. Yeah, right? Wes, Wes Lowe. Lowe. I am. Yeah, Wes okay. has been on with us several times now. He's doing some really cool stuff with a, a variety of different things. Well, why don't you tell us why that's such an important part of agriculture at Mississippi State right now, because it's pretty exciting news. Sure. Oh, wait, wait, wait. i got to do my question. I always like to okay. ask a question. So I'm you can cut. I want to ask Madison. Mm-hmm. I only know this because I heard Madison introduce himself at a meeting last winter, and he may do this a- again here. But, Madison, I know you got your start flying drones, mm-hmm. surveying. Mm-hmm. I remember you said that last winter. So what's the most interesting or maybe shocking thing you've ever seen when you were surveying land? Oh, that's a good one. I, it wouldn't have been anything that I've seen with the drone. Now, I've gotten some really, really awesome imagery from the drone. Um, nothing necessarily shocking, but I guess the most interesting, most intriguing probably came from far north. Uh, there's a small town called Virginia, Minnesota, which usually trips me up because it's like two states, but the right. name of the town is actually Virginia, uh, Minnesota, and there's a large iron ore mine up there so i used to go up there to do cut and fill surveys with uh, uas uavs drones Uh, and so some of the imagery that came from that at the time of year that i was flying was this big big tall facade uh, that would go deep down into the earth for the iron ore mine and then there was water collected at the bottom of the mine that was frozen solid this was in like february of i guess 2000 15 or 16 at the time and so I just I remember that that imagery stands out amongst all of the others I've done a lot of topo surveys and a lot of uh, various places uh, all of which were you know nice places I like to be out of the office and like to be able to go and fly and capture data and, and all of it's interesting to me but among all of the surveys that I did that's the one that probably sticks out the most overall just in terms of the uniqueness of that imagery as well as the final uh, data set of that survey it was, it was super cool. All right, Tom, check that box. That's our first description of an iron ore mine on the podcast. That is, yeah, that's kind of down in the sheets. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but a cold time of the year, that's what I was focused on. February is not a time that I want to be up there. 
I'd actually left from here, and it was one of those weeks in you know mid to late February in Mississippi that all of a sudden it can get up into the 70s on you real quick. Feels really nice, and that's kind of like that false spring. It's going to get cold again in March, but you get that week of really nice weather in Mississippi, and I flew out from here. Hibbing, Minnesota is where the airport was, and then the short drive over to Virginia, I think it was like eight or ten degrees mm-hmm. when I got there, so that was a that was interesting shock to the the senses and the sinuses once I got up there. I've never been. I'll take y'all's word for that. I have been, but whenever I've gone to Minnesota, it's been really nice. Really nice, 65, 70. All right. We'll back up then. Why don't you tell us why the two of you are here and what's so exciting, the good new news from Mississippi about the addition of y'all's activity. Well, as of roughly a month ago, we formed a new institute at the university called the Agricultural Autonomy Institute, And it is a university-level institute, meaning that it is not under a college. It basically reports to two vice presidents at the university. One of those is the vice president for research, and the other is the vice president for the Division of Ag, Forestry, and Veterinary Medicine. But the focus is really around autonomous systems, meaning robots, if you will, or machines or machine systems that do things in agriculture without any human intervention. So there's sensing involved. There is artificial intelligence involved for making decisions about things. And then there is actuation, which is, you know, applying fertilizer or it's applying herbicide or it's deciding to till here or there. Uh, But decisions are made and actuated in the field without people's intervention. Obviously, drones fit into that. And that's your specialty, Madison. Why don't you give us a rundown on uses for drones in agriculture and then really what your focus is right now sure sure while the drones definitely fit within our scope and play can play numerous roles we definitely don't want to place them on a pedestal higher than the the capabilities of the ground vehicles themselves by and large those drones have been used for mostly remote sensing data collection purposes and that data is then processed, analyzed, and used to inform some decision at some level on the ground. Ultimately, what the Institute would like to work towards is the use of both airborne systems in conjunction with ground-based systems, sometimes simultaneously, in order not only to sense in some cases, sense various whatever it is that you're out there looking for, but also to be able to streamline the autonomy across the sensing, processing, analytics, and action phases of these, and then actually have a a, a ground vehicle as well go out and perform the task based on the decision that's made. Now, if you want to talk about actually taking action itself, then the one thing that's kind of front and center of everybody's mind right now with the UAVs is aerial applications with a UAV or, you know, crop spraying with a UAV. And we're working with the uh, the Mississippi Bureau of Plant Industry to help them update some of the state-level legislation based on certifying aerial applicators. So all of your aerial applicators in the state of Mississippi not only have to maintain their credentials with the FAA, they have to be commercially rated pilots, uh, they have to have Part 137 certifications. But then at the state level, once you've got all of your federal credentials in order, you do have to be licensed by the state as well. And the state's regulations have by and large been, for aerial applicators, it's been pretty well consistent for a very long time now. Those guys have been doing their job for a very long time, but the introduction of the UAVs has now rendered some of those regulations a little bit out of date and in need of updating. And so I'll give you an example. 
uh, currently in Mississippi, you cannot receive your aerial app, uh, applicator's certificate or, or license without an in-cockpit emergency cutoff valve, for example. Well, obviously, there's not a cockpit on a UAV or a flight deck on a UAV. Your operator is located either just standing there on the ground or in some kind of ground control station on the ground. So, through collaboration with the Mississippi Bureau of Plant Industry, that was one of the items that we made recommendations on is, hey, if we can update this to include what's already in there, right? So your traditional cockpit, it's got to have an emergency cutoff valve still. But if you're a um, UAS operator seeking an aerial application license with the state, then you have to have a comparable emergency shutoff valve at the location of the operator or the operator's ground control station. So I say all of that to say that if you are in the aerial application industry, and I've worked closely with the folks at the Mississippi Ag Aviation Association uh, for a long time, as well as the National Association, NAAA, and the topic of UAVs and aerial applications has been picking up steam for a pretty long time. Um, the, The drones, I think, offer a unique solution to be able to do spot spraying outside of just the remote sensing, like I mentioned earlier. That's remote sensing scouting, being able to go take a look at something without having to get in the truck and drive across the back 40 to get to whatever you're looking at. That, that's very low-hanging fruit, very simple uses for the technology. But aerial applications comes with a, a higher degree of risk. You're carrying some type of payload, be it fertilizer, herbicide, pesticide, what, whatever it might be. And so there's additional steps you have to go through to be able to be certified and meet all of the credentials and the safety requirements that are necessary to do so. But once you've done that, I do believe that it provides a really unique solution to benefit the safety of those traditional crop dusters. Those guys perform a dangerous job and they do it very well and and they love it. They all love it. There's nobody that can fly like those guys. However, they have to fly around obstacles, tree lines, things that can make their job inherently dangerous. And I think the UAVs provide a tool that can potentially be used in those locations uh, in order to make the larger job simpler, safer, while taking care of the smaller stuff that's potentially higher risk, it just provides a unique tool to do so. Well, and they're, they're already using drone application systems in some states. I know in Kentucky, they've been using them in some of the fields that they have. They're a little bit more difficult. They're narrower for larger airplanes to get into. So they focused on using drone application technology in some of those situations. That's correct. Again, so without neglecting the ground-based systems, I would say that there's a ton of potential for, you know, autonomous or uncrewed ground vehicles. So in the same way you have a a UAV, there's UGVs. And so there's there's plenty of potential for UGVs to also be equipped with much of your traditional spray boom and nozzle equipment to be able to go and do these applications with a UGV as well. It just, it purely depends on the the particular acreage, the particular crop, the particular product that's going to be applied. There, there's opportunities for both to be very effective in doing those aerial applications. And and, and I would also say that uh, none of that should be taken as as a threat to the traditional aerial applicator community. These guys are out carrying uh, very large payloads and spraying thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. And at this point, there's no drone on earth that's going to be able to keep up with them. The flight endurance is not there. The regulatory limitations not being able to fly something larger than 55 pounds without a special waiver, that's not there. These are very much just tools that are specialized for 
performing this task in certain environments. I would say that there's equal applicability and equal opportunity for the ground vehicles to be able to do this task as well as the aerial vehicles, but both of them are not going to operate at the scale that your traditional crop duster is when you're trying to spray thousands of acres of any given commodity crop. The aerial vehicle is the one that gets a lot of attention right now. Yes, sir. We have a lot of conversation about those, but then the unmanned ground vehicle on the spectrum of technology or development of the technology, is that ground vehicle and the aerial vehicle, are they about at the same point in their development or is one ahead of the other? I would say very similar, Dr. Thompson. I don't know if you have any thoughts on the ground vehicle side as well. I think the two are similar. I would say similar as well. And I think if you look at what's happened with so-called autonomous vehicles on the road over the last few years, you know, we've been talking about that since probably the mid-2010s, 2014, 15. Some of the companies in development of that, such as Google and such as Uber, uh, were proposing that, hey, within four or five years, we're going to have cars on the road that will be driving themselves. Didn't quite happen that quickly, uh, but we are starting to see some of that in limited markets where, in fact, I just saw a video yesterday This is jumping over to drones for a moment, but I've got a friend in College Station, Texas, that took a video of a drone dropping off a package on his front doorstep. So that kind of uh, use out in the wild, if you will, with both drones and vehicles on the ground, on roads, is beginning to happen. Frankly, there's a lot greater liability with autonomous vehicles on the roadway than there is on the farm, even though there is still liability on the farm. But I think once we overcome that resistance to seeing autonomous vehicles driving down the road, then it begins to make lots and lots of sense to do the same kind of thing on the farm. If you go and look at what John Deere is pushing right now, they're pushing an autonomous tillage system, basically a tractor that drives itself and tills a field without any human intervention. Uh, This is a brand new thing that they've just come out with. Uh, They're advertising these things as available. Uh, Whether they're really available for anyone to purchase is a different question, but I think that this is definitely on the cusp of becoming a reality. Lots and lots of opportunities for harvesting specialty crops like strawberries where you've got to have hordes of people picking berries. Um, So I think the ag autonomy field includes air and ground and lots of crops in different situations. So the sky's the limit in terms of what we can do with this uh, type of research and so forth. Jason, I would, I would just add to that. So from a technological standpoint, I would, again, maintain that the two are pretty similar, whether in the in the air domain or the ground domain. Now, when you shift that and you look at it from a regulatory standpoint, I would say that the, the ground vehicles probably have a lot more flexibilities and liberties than your aerial vehicles currently do, and that's because the FAA – Um, is a very risk-averse organization. They're over all aviation in all of the United States, and the U.S. has the busiest airspace of anywhere in the world. And because of that, I would say that your, your UAS operations themselves still are a bit, you can say, handcuffed, handicapped, however you want to, you know, phrase it. But currently, you can't operate a a UAS that's larger than 55 pounds. You also got to operate them within visual line of sight, and that's something that has really limited the overall range and efficiency of your drone operations because it has to be within the line of sight of the operator. There's a a number of different ways that you can look at that, but ultimately what I can tell you is that if you're truly operating within visual line of sight the way that the regulation is intended to govern those operations, you can't take that drone out a mile from you. You really can't because if you can see it, it's going to look like a speck of dust 
and even more so, you're not going to be able to, to orientate the aircraft. You're not going to know which way it's looking unless you're sitting there seeing on your phone or your tablet which direction the camera's going. And then if that is your only singular means of operations and you lose that, there's whatever type of system failure that you lose that, if you are unable to maintain the orientation of that aircraft and pilot it back to you, well, then you're operating beyond visual line of sight. Even if you can make out a tiny speck in the air way down the way that you're flying, that that's not really what that regulation is intended to to make happen it's intended for you to operate the aircraft near enough to you that you can pilot it purely just using your controller and your eyes and if there's any obstacles or any other air traffic going back to the crop dusters if one of those guys was to come swooping in from over the nearest tree line you should be operating a uav in such a way that you can take evasive maneuvers to ensure that you're granting right of way to that manned aircraft uh, at all times and oftentimes people can take some some liberties with those operations uh, i would say that those folks do so at their own risk the the regulations that govern uas operations right now are still very strict we're seeing those become more flexible but in terms of your flexibilities the liberties what what you can do out in the field with a, a ground-based vehicle versus an aerial vehicle i'd say your ground-based have have more flexibilities because they offer especially outside of a public roadway it's a much lower risk as opposed to flying something 400 feet up in the air um, even if there's nothing on the ground beneath it you, you're never completely at a zero risk of other air traffic being in the area and the regulations are intended to make that as safe and deconflicted as possible well i think that's would go for manned aerial versus ground vehicles too it's correct just, it's common sense that yep. when it's up off the ground it's there's a little bit more risk. That's, in, that's exactly there. right. And, you know, there's a lot of times uh, if you have these discussions with, with uh, UAS operators and you ask them, you know, hey, what do you do that specific, um, you know, situation that I gave you an example of just then of a, a crop duster coming over the nearest tree line, like, hey, wh what do you do? Well, most of your UAS operators, their instinct whenever you see other air traffic is to hit the deck. You just you drop altitude, you get as low as you can, and you get out of the airspace, get out of the way. With a crop duster, you could very well be doing the worst thing you can do because of the nature of how those guys operate. And so then it, the importance of maintaining the orientation of your aircraft and knowing exactly what your position is and if you're out over the field that it that this guy's getting ready to actually go down and and put down an application at about 10 feet above the canopy, if you drop down and get in his way, then you're doing the worst thing you could do. It's just of critical importance to make sure that you're operating a UAS in accordance with the regulations and in such a way that if you're in a rural agricultural environment, you've got to understand that in any any crop duster could be coming over the nearest tree line at any time, and you need to make sure that you can stay out of their way if they do if they do show up. I could talk about this for a long time, Madison, but I also don't want to gloss over the importance of y'all's new institute and the fact that it's the only one like it. So only being organized for a month, obviously we probably hadn't done a whole lot up to this point, but I guess summarize some of the intent of the Institute and the types of work that'll go on there in the coming year or years. Sure. We got some funding initially to sort of seed funding, if you will, to stand up this Institute and then got it approved by IHL. So it became official and we're uh, using that funding ultimately for three purposes. And one of those is around bringing businesses into the state of Mississippi. It's really an economic development engine, if you will. So part of that is building business. Some of that's done through research and development of intellectual property and entrepreneurship. 
Some of that is done through bringing businesses in. You know, for example, if a John Deere or a Case or somebody wanted to have an autonomy research unit located somewhere, where might that be? Or maybe they just say that we want to test some of our autonomy capabilities with some researchers. Where would we go to do that testing and, and pay for that research? I think there will be a, a center for that kind of focus. So part of it is, is um, business development. Part of it is workforce training. We're also designing courses at the university around this type of technology. We also have plans, although we haven't started this yet, to, to work with community colleges, develop training for uh, students who would ultimately be in an industry that supports the manufacture, the distribution, the maintenance, the repair of autonomous te- type technologies for agriculture. And um, Madison, I'm, I'm forgetting the third one, so you're going to have to jump in here. Uh, so in, in terms of we've got our economic development, um, we've also got workforce development. I guess the, the research we've already touched on as one of our primary objectives. Exactly. Thanks for that. Yeah, I was sort of conflating the two. But one is the business development in terms of bringing other businesses in. And one of them is strictly the research and, and IP development, which is a big aspect of what we want to do. We did recently just have our first what I would call official ag autonomy uh, proposal grant proposal approved by USDA. It really centers on sort of the socioeconomic aspects of how autonomous technologies are going to affect farms at different scales. So if you have a large farmer who can afford to buy an autonomous tractor, how does that affect a smaller farmer? Do they have the capability to purchase such a system? Chances are they don't. Are there business models that can enable them to do that? Do you have service providers that have these types of capacities that can provide that to smaller growers? So that's the, the idea behind that study. But ultimately, a lot of the hard engineering and science aspects of this technology are what we're involved in as well. A number of different faculty are looking at robotic harvesting situations. Uh, we're also wanting to work with, you know, the, the larger OEM manufacturers around uh, in terms of working with their technology and helping them test it out in a live environment. From a research standpoint, then, what kind of research are you really focused on? I mean, if it has mostly an intellectual property aspect to it, I'm sure you probably don't want to let too much out of the bag, but what's most of that going to focus on? Well, I'll give you just one example that we've been in discussions about pretty extensively, and so a lot of the research that is done is not necessarily going to be exclusively done in the field. There's a huge opportunity or a huge need for the use of modeling and simulation to be able to do this prior to taking this out into the field. And so we have colleagues at uh, MSU Center for Advanced Vehicle Systems, CAVS, and they have developed a modeling and simulation environment that's known as MAVS, which is modeling. uh, I think it's Mississippi State University Autonomous Vehicle Simulator. That's it. That's exactly it. So MAVS, overall, it it is an off-road autonomous systems simulation environment, and it's very diverse. They can do really unique things like put you in an environment midsummer like we have right now where trees are full canopy on densely forested areas off-road environments where there's no no path and, and you're using like lidar sensors to detect the trees around you and be able to try to navigate through a densely forested area and a lot of that is uh, very focused on defense type applications uh, but what Dr. Thomason and I have discussed with them recently is trying to tailor 
that Mavs simulation environment to be ag specific, right? And in doing so, then we can simulate various agricultural growing environments and we can do modeling and simulation testing within that environment prior to carrying the the technology out into the field to perform research or demonstrations or even uh, validation of specifications. So as those autonomous take ground vehicles, for example, as those start to become more mainstream through your traditional OEMs. Our hope is that those OEMs will have a need as these prototypes become more advanced. They'd like to come out and do testing in the field to be able to validate the specifications of these systems. Well, through the support of MAFIS, we've now secured a field at, at the RR Full Plant and Soil Science Research Center, better known as North Farm there in Starkville, secured a small irrigated field. It's directly adjacent to, I'm jumping back over to calves for a second here, but calves has their own proving ground, right? So not only do they have that Mavs simulation environment, but then once their simulations have rendered certain results, they're able to take the vehicle out into their proving ground, which is a densely forested area. It's that forest just to the west of North Farm and they can take the vehicles to the proving ground and be able to do proof-of-concept demonstrations. Well, we are very much intending to follow a similar model there. We're going to have an a irrigated plot where we can take these systems out into the field and be able to put them through their paces right there as well. And so that's going to pair really nicely with having a laboratory environment, which the Ag and Bioengineering Department has a laboratory there at the uh, Pace Seed Technology Building there on campus at Mississippi State. That's also where the new Ag Autonomy Institute is going to be housed. And so across the board, being able to do research in the modeling and simulation environment and the controlled environment in the laboratory setting all the way out to the field environment and as real world conditions as, as we can uh, provide, we'll be able to do research, experimentation, evaluations, and demonstrations across the board in all of those. And I think that's something that's going to make us really unique and, and offer a lot of value to prospective research sponsors and, and collaborators. And all the parts I totally forgot about because you've got to have computer modelers to write all the algorithms and everything else for all of that to actually work once you do go do any field or ground-based testing of any of those systems. That's correct. I want to move back over to kind of where our conversation started, talking mm-hmm. about the unmanned vehicles, whether aerial or ground. So our listeners are farmers, they're consultants, all levels of production, mm-hmm. agriculture. And I don't want to put anybody on this, Dr. Thomas, when you mentioned the autonomous vehicles on the road and we didn't hit that timeline. So no timeline, but just in generality, tell our listeners what they might expect in this arena, short term and long term. Mm-hmm. And, and again, with no specific timeline. I think one of the things that you're going to see, particularly in the realm of ground-based equipment, tractors and harvesters and that kind of thing, is offerings of kits to make your tractor an autonomous tractor. Some of those things are already beginning to be on the market. Some of the big manufacturers are already beginning to offer autonomous tractors for very specific purposes. I mean, you can't just necessarily put them out there and have them do anything you want. But tillage, for example, I mentioned earlier, is a fairly simple task if you define the field and how the pattern of movement. Uh, Those things are going to be more and more available. They're going to get cheaper and better uh, over time. Uh, I think after that, you're probably going to begin to see opportunities for what I would call leader-follower technology, where maybe you have a combine with a tractor pulling a wagon alongside of it. And both of those at this point require drivers, but in the pretty near future, I think you're going to have that tractor 
be able to carefully follow that combine appropriately without a driver on it because of sensing and analytics technology. One other thing I would throw out that really hasn't been mentioned yet is that I think the scope of what we're calling ag autonomy is in our conversation up to this point, strictly production ag, but I would throw out a couple of other opportunities for ag autonomy that fit within our scope as we see it. One of those is processing. So let's imagine uh, catfish. They get taken out of the pond, they go to the plant and they get cut. And a lot of that work is done by hand. That's very challenging work. It requires a lot of employees who are sometimes not easy to find. Uh, it's, it's the safety factor there is, is a limitation in a lot of aspects. And so there is the opportunity to automate some of those processes that, for example, are unsafe. If you're able to identify where the head of the fish is very carefully and cut it with an autonomous tool, that is ag autonomy in the scope that we're talking about as well. Uh, one other thing I would say is that agricultural research, and I'm particularly thinking of what breeders do, where a corn breeder might have a thousand plots on a field, and historically they would have had technicians and grad students and themselves been walking the fields. They can expand the breadth of, of the, the number of their plots, if you will, by using a drone, for example. And in some cases, you can measure things with new sensing systems that you really couldn't measure just with a human walking the field. You can look at different parts of the light spectrum. You can look at the uh, makeup, the architecture, if you will, of the plant canopy and things like that, and make decisions that uh, are better than and faster than they used to be to advance a crop from here to, to where you need five years from now. I would add to that just to, to speak to the, again, the UAV drone side of things. We had this conversation a lot over the last several years. And so what I would say in terms of timeline, Jason, which immediately you're Airborne autonomous systems are readily available, commercial off the shelf, oftentimes for a pretty modest price. I mean, if you are willing to shell out a thousand bucks, you can get a pretty capable drone that's pretty intuitive, easy to operate, has a decent camera on it. And those systems are already very, very easily capable of going and doing your, your simple scouting tasks like I talked about earlier. If it's just about going to go take a look at something and confirm, oh, my field's watered out, I can cut the well off, or oh, it looks like it's still got a little ways to go, that's, that's low-hanging fruit that's very, very simple, easy to do right now. Uh, given the uh, credentialing requirements we talked about earlier, even if you're, just, even if you're not a, a traditional aerial applicator, all you want to do is, is fly a drone for, for your commercial agriculture purposes. You do still need to go get certified, get your Part 107 license through the FAA so you can be totally legal uh, and do everything by the book. Now, that's only the start of what the technology is capable of. With time and with loosening of certain regulatory restrictions, you'll be able to do things like fly beyond visual line of sight, which is what a lot of conversation has been about with the UAVs for a long time now. So I think within the next year to three years, I anticipate that under certain provisions, you will be able to fly a UAV uh, under routine operations beyond visual line of sight. Now, what that means is that you'll be able to utilize the maximum uh, range of your system. These radio frequencies that control your Standard commercial off-the-shelf UAVs, they're usually flown on a 2.4 gigahertz radio frequency, and that radio frequency, unobstructed, can continue two, three, sometimes even out to five statute miles, depending on your location. So 
within the next year to three years, I would say that routine beyond visual line of sight operations are probably the next thing to be on the horizon, and that will enable not only a greater scale of your just routine scouting type operations, um, but it'll also allow for data collection at a broader scale. So if you're, to Dr. Thomason's point about using this technology for research purposes, so if you are a grower or a researcher and you use UAVs to capture, say, spectral data of your crops for creating NDVI maps or, or uh, doing other things to be able to assess the health of any given crop, you'll be able to do so at a broader scale um, once you're able to operate routinely beyond visual line of sight. If you look beyond that three year to even pushing five years or longer, uh, further looking towards the horizon here, then ultimately the next thing that will really be a game changer in terms of your airborne systems is the ability to operate systems that weigh more than 55 pounds. Right now, there are recommendations that were made to the FAA in the last year that would, interestingly enough, the recommendations weren't ba based on weight at all. They were based on kinetic energy, which is, you know, the amount of energy that that aircraft is going to create if it happens to fall out of the sky towards the earth. Uh, but if you do the quick math on it, then the kinetic energy classifications that were recommended to the FAA would equate to uh, drones that weigh up to about 1,300 pounds. I think it'll probably be five years or longer before you see drones weighing that much in commercial use. MSU, through some special uh, authorizations from the FAA, has aircraft, you know, drones that are that large right now, and they're being flown for research purposes right now, but it's on a case-by-case -case approval basis with the FAA. I think you're looking at probably five years or longer before those type of aircraft uh, become readily available for commercial use. Obviously, they'll come with a heftier price tag. I imagine that their regulations will be quite hefty as well. Um, the training that's required to be certified to use those will be hefty but ultimately what do you get from all of that additional effort additional cost it equates to additional payload capacity so you can if you are doing say spot aerial applications with a with a uav then being able to carry more payload is critical because if you can only carry couple gallons, you're not going to be spraying something very much. Also, it equates to your operational uh, endurance. You can carry more fuel, means that you can fly longer. Your standard, you know, battery-operated drone right now is going to get you on average about 20 or 30 minutes worth of flight time. You start flying larger ones in the future, then they'll be able to fly longer, and then you can do whatever your task is for a much longer period of time. That's, but I would say all of that is looking five years or more down the road. We're slightly limited by technology. I mean, that's that's definitely what you've indicated because the battery systems on some of those drones are only so good, especially if you're shooting a lot of pictures. I mean, in any of the any of the areas where I've used it, it's been photography mostly to, mm -hmm. to stitch something together from a field and look at one particular thing in that field, and you're yeah, I mean, you're swapping batteries out pretty regularly. Absolutely. If you're not, if you don't have a battery bank on board the aircraft itself, then again, you're tw talking twenty to, to thirty minutes. Now, some of your larger systems, particularly those that are custom built, for example, I'll give a shout out to Whisper Systems, which is a, a UAS manufacturing company that was born out of the Entrepreneurship Center at Mississippi State University. They've now gone on to set up their headquarters in Batesville, and they've actually become quite successful as of late. All of their uh, components for their UAVs are all sourced from the U.S. They're completely uh, assembled here in the U.S., and they're doing quite well. 
when you have a custom-built UAV, then it allows for uh, the use of multiple batteries at any given time, and that can exponentially increase your flight time. Those guys have a platform that can carry a fairly heavy payload and fly for uh, up to 90 minutes, I believe, which is about three times more than, than your other kind. But the limiting factor there is your lithium polymer batteries, right? We've, we've pretty well maximized the potential for that technology. They're great, but they just it's not going to give you the same endurance as, you know, a combustion engine with a gas tank full of Jet A. It just, it's not, not the same. Again, I could talk about this for a long time because I'm not conversant in any of it, but we certainly appreciate it. Tell folks, if they're interested in the Institute, where they can go to find out more about it. Very soon, I'm not, I can't put a date on that, but we will have our own website. Uh, Madison, I'll tell you what, I'll let you give the, what the website is going to be and the email addresses for us. Sure. So uh, again, with this being the MSU Agricultural Autonomy Institute, the new website, once it's up and running, which will come here very shortly, it will be aai.msstate.edu. And then our email addresses for the staff of, of the Agricultural Autonomy Institute will most likely be, kind of, you know, your standard first name initial and then last name at aai.msstate.edu. All of that will be available there on the website as soon as it goes live. So the important thing to remember, aai.msstate.edu. In the meantime, if you want to reach out and get in touch with us, then feel free to reach out to me directly. My cell phone number is uh, 662-545-9303. And then uh, current email until the new email comes online is just mdixon at research.msstate.edu. Either, either way, cell phone or email, you'll be able to get in touch with me. Our eventual email addresses, website, those things are coming as well as social media. So uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, the usual suspects. We'll, we'll have a presence on all of those as well. Thank you all so much. That was awesome, and I learned a lot. We appreciate uh, you being here. I mean, it's nice to be able to talk about some of those things because the application of those, I think, just continues to grow. And I know it's it's something we've talked about. I'm, I'm slowly getting into it, started reading up on some of the stuff to take the test in the winter, and then just ran out of time. Had some other things come up. As we talked about, I'm still back in the knob world. I Fewer screens, more knobs. That's yeah, I know. <laughs> well, we really appreciate you yeah. guys having us. I mean, the opportunity to come on and speak about the new institute when we're this early and, and still working to get established, it's it's great to be able to spread the good word. And also, the, I guess the last comment I would give is just that, you know, Mississippi State is known for agriculture. I mean, the, the university's contributions in the, in the agriculture field are, are far and wide and, and, and well respected but I would also say over the course of the last you know coming up on 10 years now as far back as 2015 Mississippi State won the lead university designation for the FAA's UAS Center of Excellence and we continue to hold that to this day you heard me mention the, uh, the Center for Advanced Vehicular Systems so CAVs uh, you heard me mention the, the large very heavy drones that state currently operates that's happening out at the Raspit Flight Research Lab right now so ultimately, over the last 10 years, I would say that autonomous systems research, both fundamental research and applied research and advancing of operations of autonomous systems has been a, a huge uh, area of research at Mississippi State as well as economic development for the state of Mississippi. And so the new institute will, will aim to combine those two strengths that the university is so widely known and respected for. So anything that's happening at the intersection of agriculture and autonomous systems we want the Ag Autonomy Institute to be center slot for it. 
That's a good commercial for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a very good commercial. Well, we're proud y'all were able to share a part of your afternoon with us. Be careful going home, and we look forward to getting you back over here sometime in the future. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you. you. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.